Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi folks. Over the last week, I launched my Patreon campaign to fund a major podcast series on the Great Famine through 2017. So far, 39 listeners like you have gotten on board and become patrons for the series. I'm extremely grateful to those patrons for getting the ball rolling. However, to deliver my ambitious plans for 2017 to their full potential, I still need listeners like you to get behind the show and become a patron. It's really easy to do at the website patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Irish podcast. There's a great video there filmed in an abandoned famine village where I explain what I can achieve with your support. If you become a patron, you get lots in return. This includes a patron's guide to each episode with a fully referenced transcript of the podcast along with maps, pictures and much more. You'll also get a monthly patron's podcast and you'll get to participate in monthly online video discussions with me about the show where you can ask me questions. That's all available now at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Become a patron today and help make that series on the Great Famine. So now to the topic of today's show, The Phoenix Park Murders, Part 1, A Fateful Day in Dublin. The Phoenix Park Murders, which took place on May 6th, 1882, are one of the most famous political assassinations in Irish history and have intrigued me for years. It took place about a kilometre from where I live and I often walk by the exact spot where they took place, so they're never far from my mind. Unlike the Mount Trasna murders, which I covered in recent podcasts, the Phoenix Park murders are not so much mysterious, but instead are a gripping tale of intrigue, mass rebellion and political assassination. While the Mount Trasna case was very much related to the intricacies of one rural community, the Phoenix Park murders are almost the exact opposite. They're all about the wider context. This episode explains that context and the killings themselves by following one of the victims, Lord Frederick Cavendish, during his final hours. 
Cavendish, the more famous of the two victims of the Phoenix Park murders, had only spent 12 hours in Dublin before he was assassinated. He had just moved to Ireland that morning and, as we shall see, he was to an extent the victim of misfortune. Indeed, how he even found himself in Ireland was something of an accident of circumstance. Frederick Cavendish's last day alive had begun around 12 hours before his murder, when he arrived in Ireland on board the steamship, the Ulster, at 7am in the morning of May 6th, 1882. As was common for the time, the ship did not berth in Dublin itself, but instead docked in the bigger port of Dunleary, then known as Kingstown, 12 kilometres to the south of the city. The weather itself on the fateful day was glorious, and certainly an improvement on the snow, sleet and freezing conditions that had prevailed right up into early May. This boded well for what would be a long day ahead. Frederick Cavendish and the man he accompanied to Ireland, John Points Spencer, were about to be sworn in as Chief Secretary and Lord Lieutenant of Ireland in what would involve long, arduous ceremonies. However, while he was becoming the second most powerful man on the island, Frederick was arriving in a Dublin beset by problems. The population of the city stood a quarter of a million people, but was falling. Ireland in general was struggling economically, and Dublin was lagging behind other cities in the British Empire. For example, while a city like Manchester was growing at the rate of nearly 20% every decade, 76,000 people had emigrated from Dublin in the previous 10 years. The poverty that was driving this emigration underpinned the very reason Frederick Cavendish had found himself in Ireland. The country was embroiled in a social upheaval the like of which hadn't been seen in decades and Frederick was one of the two men sent to Ireland to try and calm the situation. From the outset it was a tough challenge. The country increasingly seemed ungovernable. However, no one could have foreseen how short Cavendish's stay on the island would be. The current crisis had begun in earnest in 1879 when a bitter conflict between landlords and their tenants had broken out across Ireland in a time of great hardship. Impoverished due to crop failures, tenants who fell into arrears and were faced with evictions had begun to demand better rights and fair rents. Over the three years that followed, this developed into one of the largest protest movements in Irish history, but the reaction by the British government had proved disastrous. As desperate tenants were pushed to the brink, violence increasingly broke out when landlords tried to evict them. The government had cracked down on the tenants and their organisation, the Land League. In 1881, they had imprisoned over 900 leading figures, but this had proved counterproductive. It had only added to the tensions building in Ireland, and by the end of the year, the situation was clearly only getting worse. The police statistics for 1881 revealed that crimes associated with what was known as the Land War had doubled with 4,500 reports, including 22 murders and 66 attempted murders. In response, the government decided that they needed to adopt a more conciliatory approach in 1882, and this was where Frederick Cavendish's fateful journey to Ireland began. In early 1882, the government opened negotiations with leading figures from the Land League and an agreement known as the Kilmainham Treaty was cobbled together. While the Land League leaders would try and pacify the country, the British government would introduce legislation to increase tenants' rights. However, this had provoked outrage from the government's own supporters who saw it as acquiescing to lawlessness. The Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and the Chief Secretary had both resigned 
creating a political crisis. While many questioned whether anyone could pacify the island, it eventually fell to Frederick Cavendish by a series of unfortunate decisions. He had never been the most able politician, given he had a bad lisp and shied away from public speaking. However, his career was aided by the fact that his wife, Lucy Littleton, was the niece of the Prime Minister, William Gladstone. However, while Gladstone had always favoured Cavendish, he hadn't been his first choice of who to send to Ireland. He offered the position of Lord Lieutenancy to John Point Spencer, who accepted it, and then the position of Chief Secretary to an Irish MP, Andrew Porter, but he had refused. It was only then that Frederick was offered the post, which he duly accepted, packed his bags and headed on what proved to be a one-way trip to Dublin. As he set out for Ireland, Frederick Cavendish could have had no illusions about the explosive situation that awaited him. Indeed, it was scarcely little wonder the previous Lord Lieutenant and Chief Secretary had resigned. Many, ostensibly on their own side, were utterly hostile to any suggestion of conciliation with the tenants' movement. The complexity and bitterness of the situation had been laid bare only a few weeks before Frederick landed. In April 1882, while negotiations had been underway to bring about the Kilmainham Treaty, Ireland had been rocked by one of the most shocking murders of the land war. On Sunday, April 2nd, 1882, a Westmead landlord, William Smith, was returning from Sunday church with his wife and sister-in-law. As they entered the grounds of the family home, Barbavilla House, a shot rang out and his sister-in-law was struck in the head. She died immediately as the back of her skull was blown away. The motive had been clear. William Smith, the landlord, was on the verge of evicting tenants on his estate and one of them had responded by trying to kill him. They had, however, botched the attempt and accidentally killed his sister-in-law. However, Smith did not necessarily place the blame on the killers, certainly not in public anyway. Instead, he put the blame on men like Frederick who supported the policy of conciliation with the Land League. In an open letter published in the press, Smith wrote to William Gladstone, the Prime Minister, and pulled no punches. It read as follows. Barbavilla House, Collinstown, Caloocan, April 3rd, 1882. Sir, your practical adhesion to the principle that force is no remedy in the case of Irish savagery was culminated here, making it easy for the assassin guerrilla of the Land League to murder my sister-in-law, Mrs. H. Smith. I lay the guilt of the deed of blood at your door. This was the Ireland that Frederick Cavendish was stepping into. Murders over evictions were common, but landlords wanted even more draconian measures, which would only make the situation worse. However, during his first hours in Dublin, this all seemed pretty remote. At 11am on May 6th, his arrival in Ireland seemed to be getting off to a great start. Crowds were starting to gather at the harbour to welcome the new Lord Lieutenant John Point Spencer and Frederick himself, who now only had eight hours to live. Something of a festive atmosphere was building around the port. The various yacht clubs and Coast Guard station were festooned with bunting. Nevertheless, the watchful eye of the police presence added a certain edge to the affair, but nothing concerning. At twelve noon, things finally got underway. A special train to bring Cavendish and Spencer to the city centre had arrived, and they began their short jaunt up along the coast of Dublin Bay. Fifteen minutes later, they pulled into Westland Row Station, today known as Pierce Street Station, where again a carnival-like atmosphere dominated the surrounding streets, as flags welcoming the new leading British figures were draped across the roads. At the station, Spencer and Cavendish were greeted by the Lord Mayor of Dublin, while the Artane Boys Band chimed up with the British National Anthem, 
God Save the Queen. In the first of many symbolic rituals of the day, John Point Spencer, the new viceroy, was given the keys to Dublin City, which he then returned to the Lord Mayor. Then began a major procession through the streets to Dublin Castle, with Spencer leading the way, mounted on horseback, while Cavendish followed in the carriage. The whole event was very striking and certainly painted a different picture of Dublin than that which had dominated recent headlines from Ireland. There was no tension on display. Ladies sat in windows waving handkerchiefs while Spencer acknowledged the crowds gathering to welcome him. Both he and Cavendish must surely have wondered whether the fearful violence of the land war had been exaggerated. As the parade approached Trinity College, the Dublin Metropolitan Police Band, stationed in a side street, struck up God Save the Queen again as they passed. However, as they neared the city centre and their ultimate destination of Dublin Castle, the tensions in Irish society finally broke through what was a skin-deep, placid surface. Students from the deeply conservative Trinity College pelted the carriage of the Nationalist Lord Mayor of Dublin with flour. This led to a serious confrontation in side streets between what the newspapers called corner boys and the students. However, this foretaste of what lay ahead for Frederick Cavendish in particular was soon out of sight and out of mind. Indeed, the welcoming mood soon prevailed again as they moved up Dame Street beneath a banner proclaiming, Welcome to Erin. Finally, they reached Dublin Castle just before one o'clock and yet another reception committee awaited the new arrivals. Spencer and Cavendish were ushered inside Dublin Castle where amidst prolonged pomp and ceremony, Spencer was sworn in as Lord Lieutenant or Viceroy and Frederick Cavendish as Chief Secretary. He now had seven hours to live but all was going according to plan, or at least it seemed to be. Elsewhere in Dublin, others were also making their own plans. To draw the official proceedings to a close, a firework was set off in Dublin Castle, notifying a gun battery in the Phoenix Park. They answered with a ceremonial 15-gun salute, followed by three rounds of 21 guns, and with that, the ceremony was complete. Finally, Spencer and Cavendish could get down to business and maybe gain some sense of what they were facing in Ireland. They surely knew that the welcome they had just received was a charade of sorts and did not represent what most parts of Ireland were like. The most important and indeed fateful meeting for Cavendish was his encounter with Thomas Henry Burke, the permanent undersecretary or chief civil servant in Ireland, a key figure in our story. The last Lord Lieutenant had been absent for long periods and Burke had effectively been the man in charge on a day-to-day -day basis over the previous few years. Because of this, he had been heavily associated with the government policy of repression during the land war. Burke, a man of about 60, was a workaholic and described by one contemporary as the most efficient official I have ever come across and my only fear about him is that he will literally work himself to death. His work would kill him very shortly, but not in the way most assumed. From even the briefest of encounters with Burke and the other civil servants in Dublin Castle, Spencer and Cavendish could have been left with no illusion as to what lay ahead for them. The welcoming cheers on the crowded streets of Dublin were indeed a thin veneer that masked the reality of an Ireland increasingly at war as tenants defended their houses against landlords, bailiffs and the police. A perusal of newspaper stories from the last few weeks before they arrived highlighted the explosive tensions that were abroad. Over these weeks there had been numerous incidents in Limerick, a bailiff's house was attacked, his dogs shot and a threatening letter left for him by tenants. Meanwhile, in Offaly, a number of tenants were beaten by their neighbours for paying rent during a rent strike. In Mayo, a certain Mr McGloin, a landowner, had been on his way to court to secure eviction notices when he was shot. 
His attacker, however, had missed and McGloin had returned fire, killing his assailant. Then, on the evening before Cavendish and Spencer arrived in Ireland, the police had opened fire on a demonstration in Ballina, injuring several boys, one of whom would later die. This was all in the space of a few weeks. Even officials like the Lord Lieutenant were by no means immune. In February, a letter bomb had been sent to Dublin Castle, but had not gone off when it was opened. Little did Frederick Cavendish know that within hours, he would be the latest statistic. But before I go into this, I want to take a quick break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was after six in the evening when Frederick Cavendish's first day in Ireland finally drew to a close and he could go to his new residence, a mansion in the Phoenix Park, which is today the American ambassador's residence. However, Cavendish took the first of several very random decisions that would cost him his life. New to Dublin, he decided to walk to his new home in the Phoenix Park from Dublin Castle, a pleasant stroll of about four kilometres that would bring him through the grounds of the park. While the country was deeply unsettled, Cavendish of all men had little to fear. He had only arrived in Dublin that day, and in a world before photographs and newspapers were common, no one recognised him. Furthermore, Dublin was safe enough when compared to much of rural Ireland. Crime was pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. In a recent sitting of Dublin courts, 30 of the 50 cases heard regarded drunkenness. Cavendish's walk westwards through the city was indeed pleasant. Passing the four courts and then the Royal Barracks, the biggest British Army barracks in the city, he finally reached the Phoenix Park sometime after 7pm in the evening. Unknown to him, he only had minutes to live. Not long after he entered the grounds of the park, close to the entrance of Dublin Zoo, a carriage pulled up alongside him. This was certainly unusual. That was until one of the few men in the city who did recognise him hopped out. Burke, the civil servant he had met earlier, was himself heading home towards his residence, which happened to be opposite Cavendish's new home. So the two men walked up Chesterfield Avenue through the Phoenix Park together. Unknown to Cavendish, this had sealed his fate. The Phoenix Park itself on summer's evenings is idyllic, with landscaped gardens and large amounts of trees. It is a refuge from the humdrum of urban life in the city. However, on that evening of May 6th, 1882, as the sun set over the Phoenix Park, Cavendish and Burke were not alone. Unknown to them, they, or at least Thomas Henry Burke, was being stalked by seven men. 
This was not the first time these men had waited for Burke in the Phoenix Park on his way home. For months a small group of radical Republicans had been monitoring him and other British officials who lived in the Phoenix Park. On that evening they saw Burke, the man most associated with the repression of the Land League, walking unprotected with only one other man. This was of course Frederick Cavendish, but they were not to know this. As they approached the entrance to their homes, the seven men approached Frederick Cavendish and Thomas Henry Burke in three groups. The first, a group of three men, passed by as normal. Then a second group consisting of two men also passed Cavendish and Burke. However, these two, both men in their twenties, immediately turned around and drew long, lethal, deadly surgical knives. A frenzied attack began when one of the two plunged his blade into Burke, the target of this attack, for his role in overseeing the policy of repression during the land war. Cavendish immediately, in a somewhat feeble attempt, tried to beat back the attackers with an umbrella, but for his efforts he was stabbed repeatedly. However, no matter what he did, the men could not allow him to live. He would be a witness if they did. By the time the attack came to an end, the two men had been repeatedly slashed all over their bodies. Before fleeing in a horse-drawn cart, the assailants also delivered a coup de grace to Thomas Henry Burke by cutting his throat. While Burke died almost immediately, those first on the scene, two men cycling in the Phoenix Park, said that Cavendish appeared to be alive. As he lay dying, he had not been in Dublin 12 hours before he had become the latest person killed in the political upheaval sweeping Ireland, the upheaval that he had been appointed to bring to an end. Ultimately, he was a victim of misfortune. Had he not met with Burke, he would have walked straight by the killers. They would not have known who he was. They were only looking for Thomas Henry Burke. It was only once Cavendish started to walk with him that his fate was sealed. Within the hour, the news began to break in Dublin City. Initially, it was assumed to be a hoax. This was the highest profile assassination in living memory. Indeed, it's hard to find another one that parallels it. Furthermore, initially, it was hard to make sense why Cavendish, who had just arrived in the country, had been killed. Before the night was out, the news was confirmed and the city went into a frenzy. Crowds gathered at newspaper offices waiting to hear the latest updates. The following morning, large posters advertising newspapers began to daub the walls of Dublin announcing the murder. The Irish Times even published its first ever Sunday edition to carry the news. Telegrams also ensured it made the British Sunday papers. People were truly stunned. In Dublin, some wore black armbands while black crepe paper appeared outside shops. The attackers soon collectively identified themselves to the press as the Irish National Invincibles, a previously unknown group, so this did little to shed light on the event. While the population of Ireland had been increasingly radicalised during the land war, this attack found little sympathy. While Burke was a long-time civil servant who had overseen repression during the land war, inflicting misery on many, Cavendish was seen as completely innocent given he had just arrived in Ireland and had in fact arrived to oversee a policy of conciliation with the Land League and introduce land reforms. No one at this point knew he had been killed by accident. The attacks were condemned in the strongest terms from nearly all quarters. Even more radical Land League leaders who had often refused to condemn the attacks on landlords during the land war roundly condemned it. In this context the backlash would be fierce. Cavendish's body was shipped to England and buried in a funeral attended by 30,000 people, including 300 members of Parliament. Back in Dublin, the hunt for the killers was on. They would be hounded mercilessly. Next week, we will pick up the story of the hunt for the assassins. Until then, Slán.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 